Welcome to episode 36 of the What's Up podcast, recorded on the 18th of April 2019. Today's panel is myself, Martin. I'm Ali. I'm William. And we're also have the pleasure today of being joined by... Megan Ryder. I'm a Rutherford International Fellow here at the Observatory. <laughs> so today we're going to have a bit of a, a hole-filled episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about black holes, potholes, and moon holes. I'm going to kick off with probably the biggest story of the month, possibly of the year so far. Yeah, yeah Possibly surely, a few yeah. years, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and that <laughs> is this black hole picture. The ring of fire. <laughs> <laughs> It was, um, I, I, I guess, I, it was fun because how many of us here were at the in the room when we were watching the live stream? This is a rare thing that a bunch of us get together and actually watch a press release because we there's a few that come along, but this was the Event Horizon Telescope collaboration. There's a very large number of uh, institutions working as part of this, but there was a sort of dual press conferency thing happening, and um, the, the round robin email went round uh, on site. And uh, those the big room downstairs where we're recording just now, everyone got invited in, and it was nice to see that room full of people sitting there waiting to see this picture of the first ever image of an actual black hole. So real data for the first time, where we haven't really had real data in the past. We've always had indirect pictures of black holes. This is the very first picture of an actual black hole. So stupid question. Black Sh- holes are black. Yeah, I'm with you get a picture of one. I um, also think it's. I still think it's is an indirect picture of black hole. I, I, I concede it's absolutely awesome and very exciting, <laughs> and I was very excited, and it was much better than I was expecting it to be. But it's still not really a picture of black hole. Isn't the whole point that light cannot exactly. escape? So but, how do you take a picture? Well, uh, but I have to say, I was at um, Astronomy on Tap on Tuesday night, and Rachel Livermore was talking, and she made me smile because she brought up the the really famous quote from Red Dwarf where you've got Holly going, you see the thing about a black hole, right? Is it's black. And the thing about space is it's black. <laughs> so it's really hard to see one. And that's true. Um, but the nice thing about a black hole is it's if, if it was sitting on its own, isolated in the middle of nowhere in a complete vacuum, you wouldn't see anything. But it's, it's not. There's nearly always something going on around it. There's gas around it, and the gas is falling down the plug hole, so to speak. But that gas is going to get really hot. That's what glows. And that's what gives you something that you can image. And we've known that black holes should generate stuff that's detectable. But the biggest problem is that black holes, even though they're crazy massive things, or at least the ones in the middle of the galaxies are, um, they're really, really, really small. And they're really far away. So to actually resolve some of this stuff, actually take a picture of it, is crazy difficult. And the announcement was the first ever picture of something down at these scales where. I still can't quite get my head around how good the data was. Because, you know, we, we get excited about the ELT, which is a 39-meter mirror. Is that right? 39? It is 39. Yep. 39 meters. It's oh, amazing, the biggest optical telescope ever. The telescope that they used to image this thing was a admittedly virtual telescope, but it was the size of planet Earth. This is a large <laughs> telescope. Um, this is like science and engineering for the wind, though, right? Because you're using a bunch of small, relatively speaking, telescopes spread out all over the planet mm-hmm. uh, and making them work together so that you effectively have a planet-sized telescope so that you can do something like take a picture of the hot gas around a black hole in another galaxy. Yeah, Just, and I, I, actually I was a bit surprised. Was anyone else expecting them to talk about Sagittarius A star? You mean the and, black hole at the center of our galaxy? Yes. 
Yes, I just assumed because yeah. that was the nearest one to us, that would be the easiest one. But it turns out that, um, so this was the black hole that's in the middle of M87, which is a nearby galaxy, I guess. What was it, 55 million light years, something yeah. like that? Just pretty just close. The corner. <laughs> <laughs> Although me and numbers recently, so just disregard anything I say within a factor of 10. Uh, but yeah, the it's M87. Um, but they said in the press conference, it was something like as soon as they saw the data for M87, they wanted to publish that first because it was clean and it was obvious and it was going to be amazing. And the Sagittarius A star, our own black hole is coming, but it's, a thousand times smaller and a thousand times closer and well, that's a convenient. thousand times more variable so it flickers more. numbers are rough. Which, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm to say that you're... To be fair, I'm, go- I'm going with the press conference numbers. Um, <laughs> so again, factor of 10. <laughs> Ali talking here. Uh, but the... So A star is coming but it's harder to do because it flickers and the, this, the what Megan was just talking about, that, that voodoo of interferometry where you can take well i mean it sounds like voodoo but it is actually science have you done interferometry before oh that's cool because to me i'm just like wait a minute so you do take tiny little things spread them far apart oh but it's beautiful right because uh light is a wave and Mm. so what you do is basically measure where the peaks are and where the troughs are in your wave of light and if you line those up perfectly you put the peaks together and the troughs together you can interfere them with your interferometer. And then magic happens. Uh, and then science <laughs> happens, yes. Hang on, you said magic, you said science. Said science. That's, that's, uh, see, this is where the difficulty lies. We shouldn't conflate the two. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think to everyone, I've had this conversation a lot, but to the people who don't understand interferometry or don't use interferometry, it still seems a bit like magic. It's not. I totally concede that, that I, I, I'm willing to accept that this probably is real. Um, but I think you make a good point, right? It took yes. 20 years to get to the point where you could take a picture of a black hole because it wasn't easy, mm. right? And if for those of us who didn't work on this for the last 20 years, it does seem a bit magical because we didn't yeah. spend 20 years trying to make it possible, right? Yeah. So. so I guess for context, we're we're talking radio images here, aren't we? Was, was your interferometry radio too, or was it? Um, yes. Okay. This, this was sort of sub, sub-millimeter, millimeter, wasn't it? I think this is 1.3 millimeters. Yeah, um, okay. So ish. I guess it's, I mean, it's, in some yeah. ways it's sort of the same... Um, observing techniques if you go to sub-millimeter and, and roughly speaking. Yeah, so yeah. roughly speaking, I guess you need radios. Um, different electronics to do millimeter as opposed to centimeter, where I think most of this planet-sized telescope work has been done before, uh, and you're a little bit more sensitive to the weather. Ah, <laughs> right, yes. yes. Yeah, which was a major concern with this, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, as we were saying in the press conference, you need clear weather across... Yeah, you actually need the whole planet to be behaving at once, yes. It's kind of fun because the it's actually quite common, isn't it? I mean, ALMA is an array and uh, everyone will have maybe heard of the VLA, the one that's made famous in contact. So that's like instead of one big dish, it's a whole bunch of dishes. Shall we define the acronym? Because astronomers have great Mm, names for telescopes. The Very Large Array in New Mexico. Descriptive. (laughs) (laughs) And so I guess you could call this the Extremely Large Array. Then just virtual I mean, a Vent Horizon telescope is a really great name for it yeah, because it, it describes exactly what it wanted to do, which was image the event horizon around a black hole. Yeah, and we've not even talked about that yet, so we'll, we'll, we'll come to that, I think. But, 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 but just on, on that point, the part of the reason I've named that is because I think you were saying that there's very few other things you could point this telescope at. It's not like, oh, this is a wonderful new facility which has been created and we could do lots of other interesting science. Actually, there's very few things which are either bright enough or near enough um, that we could use yeah. this telescope for again, isn't it? So it is just a few black holes. Yeah. Or, or even, 
maybe two. Maybe even as many as three. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, on the flip side, you get a picture of black hole. Oh yeah. No, so no, no, no. I guess, yeah, you pick your big investment for, although, so in defense of the team who put this together, I think it was actually a really clever way to do it because it's a bunch of telescopes that do uh, already exist and were already online for doing all kinds of science independently uh you put a little bit of new electronics on that and then do the hard work of figuring out when the weather across the planet's going to be conducive and get them all to work together and you get a picture of a black hole like uh that's clever i um i'm really impressed with the idea and then they pulled it off like yeah uh, go to persuade team. all those funding organizations who are in these different telescopes to all i mean most people want to play together, but yeah. <laughs> it's quite a big ask. That's true. I mean, we, we mentioned it was it at least six months ago, if not longer, the, the one at the South Pole. They had to wait for the weather window because they were observing and then it was going into where the weather was bad. So you can't actually get to the telescope to pick out the hard drives and actually fly them to where you need to fly yeah. them because it's not like you've got decent Wi-Fi <laughs> to get it from Antarctica to the rest of the planet. So there was like a a pause while those hard drives were getting shipped around the world, which is kind of awesome. Um, and it must be fun transporting those things like in a well, movie or something. I think this is a key point is, so how was the data actually collated into one plate? Uh, I believe there was, there was like two sites, wasn't there? So there was one in Europe and one in America and they were, there was different, everything got dumped on the hard drives and then they got sent, the data for two different bandwidths or something got sent to these two different locations. I'm looking at Megan to see if if, if she's going to correct me or I might be wrong. But the it was I'm not yeah, remembering, so, but I am remembering. Right, you have to get the data to the place where it will be interfered, where they're actually going to put the data from the different telescopes together. Right. Yeah. So I think there were. Um, I, it was I a lot was of data. Mm, yeah, and, and like those correlators, you're basically putting everything in phase, and you need to know like. Is it the time signal needs to be like you have to have it like so precisely synchronized? Otherwise, when you try and phase up your um, your incoming waves, everything's going to look messy anyway. So that's half the job is just to do that. And that's before you even get to the stage where you're ready to make an image. So and part of the reason, yeah, you're sending all your data to a few specialized sites is you need quite the supercomputer just to do the analysis of the cool. data. Um, and then transporting that huge amount of data. What was the great expression they had for... Um how this all gets sent. We're not doing an internet transmission. We're using the... The uh, sneaker net. The sneaker net. It's like uh, <laughs> some sweaty intern <laughs> with a hard drive from floor to floor. Because the, um, the, the data amounts are huge. So crazy numbers, yeah. isn't they? Like, petabytes. Five, five, petabytes. five petabytes of data. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is they, they take the hard drives from the telescopes and rather than sending it over the internet or transferring it any other way, they literally post a pile of hard drives to someone to then plug into their supercomputer do the analysis sneaker net because that's quicker I know if this is true but I'm imagining somebody with a briefcase yeah I hope <laughs> with a chain right. yes. <laughs> but, but the principle of what they're doing to combine the signal is it in, okay it's much bigger telescope but is it in any way fundamentally different to what we're doing with normal arrays of radio telescopes like the VLA or Alma which are multiple dishes is I this, think this, that, the same, same science so um, when you go to higher frequencies so 1.3 millimeters or the wavelength of the observation of the EHT is a little bit higher in frequency than these sort of whole Earth observations have been done before. And what that means is you need um, better timekeeping for your signal so you know exactly when your peaks and troughs are coming in. Right. Um, and you need to know very, very precisely where exactly on the planet each of your telescopes is. So measuring the space between them. Uh, right. Okay. Because you need to know... Um, yeah, like of course. Which, you're, yeah, yeah, you're sampling of the different, different points. Which point? Yep. 
it seemed like the, how do they do the data rate goes up for the smaller wavelength as well so it's like if you're at longer wavelengths you don't need to worry about the atmosphere so much um this is all i got from reading the paper briefly but the um i think at the shorter wavelength the data rate goes up by a huge amount as well so you can you can do this at longer wavelengths with less data but you need everything to be able to unpick what the atmosphere is doing as well which is the bit that scares me even more because there's a lot of work that's going into this but yeah um i guess we haven't really talked about what the image was like showing the fact that it's a donut in space and that was the first image that everybody saw and it was kind of pretty and then some people moaned because it looked slightly out of focus but then when you point out just how difficult this was to actually resolve this donut do you have a sense of what the best picture of like the ring of stuff around a black hole was before this like i'm trying to imagine what that would look like next to this picture like would it look like a pixel uh the, yeah, the same the, <laughs> yeah. trouble is I've, the paper mentions this because they tried to do this with VLBI very long baseline interferometry um, so the before, same technique but longer wavelengths so you don't get as good a resolution yes so they knew they were they knew there was something there and they knew they couldn't resolve it um, but I think it's just it's just a dot it's just a blob and um, you really needed to go up to this to see something better than a blob and now we have a blobby donut and that blobby donut is really important because I think the, the take-home message is that Einstein, again, nailed it. And there's a lot of more science to come out of this kind of discovery. And it's a little bit like when the gravitational wave detectors finally saw something for the first time. It's like all the beginning of doing this more. So we're going to get more data coming from also M87, but then Sagittarius A star. And then they're adding more telescopes to this EHT thing as well so um, uh, that's what they're saying yeah the, but can the, they get any more resolution they've got I mean, polarized light to do they said so you you can learn more about the magnetic fields okay. around the black but you can't get any more like resolution can make the, the earth image. bigger no we're having a bigger <laughs> earth but you, but you can add more i mean i think we should be advocating you know but you can add more stations having telescopes in space and then so we should I, always be saying that i think what shouldn't you, we yeah <laughs> give us money do, you can do this in space um, but I think that yeah they were going to add more stations and then eventually you'll get to the point where you're seeing like a little movie rather than just a single averaged image but I think um, that's time not uh, mm, and you would probably need, money yeah. <laughs> yeah the thing that will give you a better resolution is putting your telescopes even farther apart at the point that we've more or less spread them out over the diameter of the Earth, we're uh, running out of options. Although, uh, insert joke about putting telescope on the moon here. Uh, although <laughs> yes, that's please. actually really hard to make sure you know precisely where your telescope is and get everything phased up so you can actually interfere your data. But yeah. How did they do that on the Earth? Was it GPS? Is that good uh, enough? They said GPS in the paper. Yeah. Um, so it was that, like, that's it precise was, enough, is it? They said it was to nanosecond precision, the timekeeping. That's a foot. And I'm guessing the GPS signal was what they were using to help make that sensible. Yeah. It's kind of impressive though. So the GPS signal you get to your phone or to your sat nav isn't the no. full GPS signal. Hmm. The GPS is far, far better. You can also do differential GPS by having two receivers close by, measure the distance between them, and then compare their location signals to each other. And then you can get down to centimeter precision. With differential GPS systems. And then you add into all this craziness the fact that the Earth is rotating under the target as you're taking your observations. So you're actually filling out a little bit of the, the sort of full image, if you like, um, as that's happening as well. So it's just kind of amazing that all that gets factored in. But I, what are you actually seeing in the image? I guess that's what's exciting to me because I do quasars and um, they're active galaxies, but they're active 
in a crazy active way. M87 is a bit of a tiddler when it comes to how bright the core of this galaxy is. So long story short, we think most galaxies have a supermassive black hole in the middle of them. Not all of them, um, but most of them certainly do. And um, when stuff falls onto those black holes, it can shine. So just friction, the matter forms a disk and it will heat up as it starts to fall down the plug hole. So before it disappears beyond the event horizon, which I'll talk about in a minute, um, you can release a huge amount of energy. And the quasars that I study, the amount of energy that you're generating can actually outshine the entire galaxy by a factor of 100. So that's all those stars, billions of stars, outshined by something that's so much bigger than the solar system. It's kind of impressive. Um, and they tend to be more numerous in the distant universe, so quite far back in time, whereas M87 is technically local. I'm doing the inverted commas here. <laughs> um, so uh, its black holes actually, it's used up most of that gas as fuel. And so what you have left is a sort of very tenuous accretion disk. So this is um, what's called a low luminosity AGN. So it flickers and it's bright, relatively speaking, but it's faint compared to these monsters that exist further back in the universe kind of thing. So um, Ali, as our black hole expert, can you tell us what's so exciting about having actually resolved one, even if it's sort of not as dramatic as what you usually study? It's, uh, it's because it tells you so much information and because black holes have been so... They're, they're basically, they're, they've been in mathematical form for so long now, and I've been using formulas to try and work out the size of an event horizon of a black hole, and that's a scale that you can use, and there's only a few things you can even measure. So um, uh, if you squished the Earth all the way down uh, to less than a few centimetres, I think, it would turn into a black hole as well. So you can, if you get enough mass in a small enough place, you do get a black hole. Um, and what you have there is where physics breaks down. You have a singularity in the middle. Um, all the matter's ended up on this tiny infinitesimal space in the middle. Um, but then you can define what's called the event horizon. And that is the distance at which light itself will, if it falls into that event horizon, it's going to disappear forever and will end up on the singularity. So that's why they're kind of dramatic objects. But it also means they get this sort of misnomer of being like plug holes in space where they just suck everything in. They're not really sucking in that regard because if you replace the sun with a black hole right now the earth would keep orbiting it because it would still be the same mass as the sun it would just get very dark after about eight minutes um but what is interesting is that 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 size of the event horizon is a huge test of your best theories of physics so einstein published gr his gr work in 1915 i think and within a year Schwarzschild had already published a solution to his equations that said black holes should exist, and everyone went, ooh, it's interesting. And, but they were always a kind of a thing that you were then looking for evidence of. And this image is literally the first direct, that's it. We can't get, do any better than seeing that event horizon. And for those of you that would like to see an event horizon that's less out of focus than the real one, the interstellar black hole is actually a very faithful mostly faithful recreation of what uh, a lensed um, uh, event horizon would look like. So you've got the, the, the dark bit in the middle, and that's the event horizon itself, but then you have this beautiful arcs of light going all the way around it, and you're basically seeing images of the light that's bent from other sides of the black hole, and it all comes around in this sort of glorious arc and looks a bit crazy. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a reasonable approximation for what you would see if you had really high-resolution images. So the, the interstellar black hole is more similar to the things I would care about. So that's um, 
what's called thin discs. Um, so a thin disc is like what Saturn's rings are. Um, so the disc is very wide compared to how fat the disc is kind of thing. Is that uh, not true for M87? M87 is a thick disc. Oh. Um, Did we know that beforehand? Uh, I think people suspected it, yeah, because the, the, the simulations sort of bear this out and the the, that's the reason Interstellar's one looks slightly more dramatic. But then you're looking at it in the optical in Interstellar, whereas we're in the radio here, so this is a slightly different thing. But you're you're seeing the gas. Uh, it's basically making a circle of light, and you're seeing light that's coming from the gas, but you're also seeing it bent from all sides of the black hole, and it creates this weird donut in space. And it's sort of asymmetric as well, so it's dark on one side and bright on the other, and that's... Um, it's essentially a lighthouse effect, so they, they call it relativistic boosting, which um, uh, hurts my brain when I think about it. But it's it's in, in, in relativity, it's very similar to a lighthouse because you don't see the light from the lighthouse until it's pointed at you. And when the light beam is pointing somewhere else, you don't see it. So with the accretion effect that's going around this black hole, the part of the disk that's coming towards us looks brighter. So it looks like it's asymmetric, but that's that's kind of everything in a nutshell there. And what we're still not sure about and what they don't have the resolution to tell us is exactly, is it light from the accretion disk? Is it light from the jet? Is the black hole rotating? But they think yes, but they're not sure exactly how fast it's rotating. Um, but they do know it's rotating clockwise. So when you see that image, it's going that way. Um, and the jet is sort of um, just off to the side. Then you can see the jets in the Hubble images and those jets get launched somewhere down in this very region that we're looking at, but we're still sort of working out exactly how that's going to happen as well. So there's a lot of stuff all in this very out-of-focus blob. And it's, it's not a, out of focus. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> everyone it, kept saying it looks out. It's, it's like that's A, that's a... a but it, it a looks out of focus to somebody that's used to seeing in-focus images, though. So it just, no, no, you know, no, like no, from no, our I, point I, of view... I, I think that's... Uh, yeah, I, I, I found <laughs> that, that... It's a radio image, which has a, a large PSF, which is used to kind of... Which is used to form that image. It's, it's not the same thing as a... Uh, as a image we're used to, which has pixels in it. I was also going to point out that we've taken a picture of a thing that's, what, a few times the size of the solar system in another galaxy? Yeah. Which is why I'm trying to imagine, like, if we put our previous best picture next to that, what would it even look like? This is just so much better than what existed before. Like, it's hard to wrap my head around, like, I, yeah, um, I, it would just be a pixel or less than a pixel. Like, all of that would have just been unseen. Like, this is just such a big leap forward. It's kind of hard to... Uh, so yeah, and also, also not say just the in focus bit. It's like the telescopes were in focus. <laughs> the in focus implies like somehow you've got your things badly aligned. It's like no, 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 no. Everything was done as brilliantly as it could be. Mm. Yeah, just people, a limit to the resolution. People are comparing it to their Instagram selfies. They are. And I'm sorry to say, but an Instagram selfie and a tel- an image of a black hole in a different galaxy taken by a telescope the size of the planet. They're slightly different things. Mm-hmm. I think also there was a slight element as well. That the press conference. Mind you, most people from watching the press conference. But <laughs> in the press conference, they showed the simulation of what this thing looks like if you had amazing resolution. Oh, and, it's and, and then went, here's the real thing. It's like, don't do it like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of, this is what you could have won, prize. There, well, there's a nice um, video of, um, so a lot of people would consider Hubble to be a nice de facto, that's one of our sharpest sets of eyes on the universe. And there's a video of a Hubble pixel 
uh, and that's how the video starts. It's like this big square, and then it zooms all the way in, and then shows you how small this thing yeah. is compared to what one Hubble pixel can do. So it's almost like a thousand times sharper than Hubble's own eyes. So it's it's that good. Um, and and yeah, maybe that's the the take home message is that now we can we can use the entire Earth to image stuff. It's kind of awesome, right? I, yeah, for great. <laughs> and it's, I, I have one little bugbear and. This might annoy people, but do, does anyone mind that they chose orange as the colour to use for the image? I, I would have liked them to use something more extreme. Do we know um, why they chose orange? Extreme. I, that heat map's quite common though, isn't it? I've seen it a lot in Alma images and infrared images. And But the problem um, is it makes it look like a bunch of other millimeter images of like protoplanetary discs like somebody like somebody got mad at me when i was mentioning this at the lunch table where um that it's just it's a very good image and it, you shouldn't take anything away from it and i was kind of like yeah but you know why why it's such an extreme thing this is a whole new brand of image so you could have picked something this is very terry pratchett i was gonna say you should have used a, yeah what is the color. eighth color yeah. and it's kind of a greeny bluey color or whatever but then but because that sort of orange implies to me like lower temperature, thermal, hot dust, that kind of thing. Whereas this is crazy that's, hot. That's because you're a massive nerd. No, most, I, people, <laughs> most people see red and think fire. I just I don't know. There's it a bit just, of me that just wants to see purple, purple images in a press release for a change. Um, so you sometimes see x-rays in, in blue, that kind of thing. But because we're in the radio. So I but, guess one of the places I always have to confront my own nerdiness, if I just get an image at one wavelength, it's usually... When I'm looking at it on my computer screen, it's black and white, and I am so excited at whatever we just saw because it turns out I really like data. Um, <laughs> and it turns out when I try to, you know, tell my family about this, they don't quite share my enthusiasm for black and white blobs. So maybe no. it's already a step that it's in color, a color. I don't That's know. True. It's a shame. Well, black and white is technically the safest thing we could use, right? I mean, if it doesn't actually have a color that we would interpret as color, then everything should be black and white. But then you you run into the trouble with everything looks like everything. Um, so I, I don't know what the solution is, but I'm maybe just going to shut up now. We, we should we, we should be listening to it really though, because it's kind of no, we should be listening. But you know, it's like a radio wave. So yeah. obviously, then it, it's like um, I, I just remember it's Joe Jodie Foster's character that sits next to the VLA and listens through headphones and angers every single scientist in the cinema at this point. You don't Aww. really listen, but I, you, I you, was okay with that. You <laughs> said that there's some there is some audio interpretation of this. So there there are. So I guess um, my sense from the movie is because it's. Radio astronomy, because mm. she was listening at what centimeter listening? Uh, what was this inverted uh, commas? <laughs> um, at, at centimeter wavelengths that she was wearing headphones, although usually uh, an astronomer observing at that uh, observatory would be, you know, sitting in a room with a lot of computer screens watching what's happening. Drinking a lot of coffee. Yep. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> although I Always. suspect still wearing headphones. From the astronomers that I know, but not so, listening to the data. No. <laughs> so, uh... I mean, this is sort of a thing. What music do you listen to uh, while you're fighting hard to stay awake all night or if you're observing at long enough wavelengths all day and all night? Um, <laughs> there is no night. But yeah. <laughs> um, I keep forgetting you can do a lot of radio astronomy during the daytime. Um, which sounds really great until you realize that doesn't stop when the sun goes down. So you could have a shift that starts at two in the afternoon and goes until four in the morning. Oh. Uh, my undergrad advisor suggested techno for times like these as it is upbeat <laughs> enough, but you know, um, not so um, lyric heavy that it would distract you from your attempts to make sure that your data are coming in. Okay. Um, Sorry, that, that, that it, was an entire right. essay to what we were saying. Right, but well, it is listening. It's just not um, quite the data that you're going for necessarily. Um, yeah, so I think um, 
maybe contact was going for this idea that radio astronomy is a thing you listen to, although usually radio astronomers are not listening to their data. It is, um, it is the term for the wavelength of light being observed. Um, and it's actually how the radio that we listen to is transmitted, which is perhaps where radio uh, that we listen to, like, I don't know, Radio 4 or something, uh, gets its name. But it turns out you can actually listen to data. And in fact, there's an ongoing effort to sonify data as a way to make it more accessible. So there are things that maybe you could hear in the data that you wouldn't necessarily see in the data. Um, and especially um, if you're trying to make astronomy accessible to people who can't necessarily look at your data set, then you can hear the structure in your data. So you can give different tones or different frequencies. Say, if you have an image of a galaxy and you're going across the galaxy, it might sound different when you're sitting on a spiral arm where you have a lot of gas and dust than when you are between spiral arms and there is not a lot of gas and dust. Um, structures like that. So it's poking around the internet and there are a few different ways that data have been sonified and they're kind of cool. So you can hear like a supernova explosion um, because these things get brighter with time and then they kind of meet, reach a peak and fade. Like to hear what that sounds like and to hear how different explosions sound different uh, is really cool. So is that like an, is that an audible light curve? So you, you, you know, you have the data goes up and then comes down and depending on how creative you want to be you can infer different tones and add in extra layers how do you make it less than just one note or more than one note or i think if you're observing it with time yeah you could either um change your notes or change your intensity right there there is a question of interpretation right both mm. in terms of picking a color to yeah. display our it's data it's just arbitrary isn't <laughs> yeah, it yeah you have to pick um, which instruments <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and I think people have actually taken it to the step of bringing together um, science and art by by making music oh, that's really cool. where this sort of provides either the backbone or the, the structure or something like that. Um, one of the cooler things I found was you can actually sonify X-ray data, which very high energy photons that um, would be in the X-ray uh, wavelength of the spectrum tend to be fewer as they're coming onto your detector. So in some sense, you're getting them one at a time. But the way that detectors are built, you also get a sense of the energy. So you get this really abstract thing that it's just like ping, ping, ping sounds, but different um, notes because they're different energies. So it's like ping, pong, ding, dong. You're uh, just describing techno to me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is why my advisor was trying to convince me I should listen to techno at the telescope so that I might be more imaginative yeah, it's, it's in what sort of observations. <laughs> how, you, how you represent it. <laughs> can I put in a vote for, if we're going for black holes and instruments, can we go with like, some, like a tuba? Um, I feel like something, especially supermassive black holes, something kind of like big and booming. Kind of yeah, deep. or you go a sousaphone if you really want to oh, get, get Hans Zimmer involved yes. and just be yeah. like, how would you orchestrate this? Yeah. If we consider the multi-wavelength observations, we now have the best uh, millimeter wavelength image you will get of a black hole, but we have an optical simulation in interstellar. Like, how do you put those things together? <laughs> With an orchestra. Please. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I can see this yes. being a thing that becomes quite a lot of fun. We're going to have to try and dig up some of these and stick them on at the end of the podcast. Maybe not this month, but well, I think we should we should definitely do an auditory special. <laughs> so you know who we should talk to about this. So uh, Wanda Diaz-Merced has done a lot of this sonifying uh, data. So she's an astronomer at the, I believe, at the um, Smithsonian uh, Center for Astrophysics. Um, and she also did her PhD at the University of Glasgow. Fun awesome fact. <laughs> I imagine she had some great ideas about how we might uh, uh, orchestrate a the uh, uh, presentation of the best in the game. Could, on could black we holes. fire an email and just say, "Can you send us your greatest hits thus far?" And then we <laughs> could we could try and create our own. And maybe I should take some of my own data and see if I can make my quasar light curves make interesting noises. This is just going to end terribly. I guess so. we know what your afternoon looks like. <laughs> <laughs> 
So as a different sort of news story, away from the, the pure science side of things, there's a, little bit, a couple of nice sort of space engineering stories this week as well. Um, one of them's successful, one of them was less successful. Which one should we do first? Uh, do the successful one first. So the successful one, that would be the Falcon Heavy launch. Woo! So there was another Falcon Heavy launch. This is the first commercial Falcon Heavy launch, putting up Arabsat. Um, went very well, I think, across the board. Uh, you know, it's nice, in orbit. smooth lunch, which is <laughs> super good. Um, all three boosters. This, I, I watched this live. Uh, I don't know if anyone else did. I I was late to the party, so yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was actually watching this at the in, in the in the United States at the thirty fifth Space Symposium, which was a conference that I attended uh, last week. So they had it up on a big screen there, and the sort of maybe thousand people that were in the exhibition hall at the time were all crammed around this big screen watching it. And when those two boosters came back to land on the ground, just rapturous cheering and applause broke out. <laughs> I mean, um, that's pretty cool. It was, it was a good yeah. place to watch it. <laughs> Um, and then, of course, the um, central booster, which fires for longer, is a sustaining thrust for the mission, um, comes back to land on a barge, because it doesn't carry enough fuel to come back to land on the ground. Um, that came down towards the barge, and the video feed cut out at the critical moment. So it's coming down, it's coming down, it's coming down, everything's starting to shake, everything's getting really sort of uh, vibrating and going a bit crazy, and then it just goes, fades to black, and there's no feed, and it's like, feed lost. And there's sort of stunned silence in the room. And then about 40 seconds, like 30 seconds later, it comes back on, just having this booster sat there nicely on the plinth. And everyone went, ah! yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's worth highlighting that this is only the second launch yep. Falcon Heavy. And, and the first commercial one. Yes. So the last time it was just a tech demo, essentially, putting Elon Musk's car so, yeah. so this, And that crashed on the third booster. Yeah, the third booster didn't make it back. This one or did. Although, we can't say, it, what was it? They said the booster landed. It was not recovered. What does at me <laughs> because when the barge was sailing back to port the sea swell got very bad i think it was eight ten meter high waves which meant that the rocket toppled off oh no so the rocket booster that was sitting on the barge fell off into the ocean on the way back to so the you port. managed to get it all the way from low of orbit back safely to land on a barge and then it and then it falls off. Oh, we have a, a family thing. expression about hitting a tree. It's like you go on this week's long vacation and everything's fine, and then you hit the tree in your front yard as you turn back <laughs> into your own driveway. Like that sounds like what happened here. Yeah, was this rocket much. just too big to bring below deck? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the barge is is just basically a, it's it's a barge. It's a flat plank basically. Um, so they just have it sitting on there upright because it lands on the four um, legs in the back thruster, so it sort of sits upright. It's quite tall. I mean, so the, the, the whole Falcon Heavy is slightly taller than the Walter Scott yeah, Monument. It's about 75 metres. Yeah. yeah. So cool. I think this section is probably easily 50. Hmm. Thereabouts. But then so. in, in my head, I'd always imagined that when it lands on the drone ship, there's all these wee robots come out and then the Acme music from the cartoons plays and it's like, dun, 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 and they like take the rocket and put it apart and then strap it down to the deck and then everybody goes back to yeah, sleep I didn't and imagine. then it sails home. I didn't think it sailed the entire landscape <laughs> with this really tall thing. It was tempting fate is what you're saying. Yeah. 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 I was you like, wouldn't need a very big wave to knock that over, would you? The barge is quite big and it's got quite strong thrusters because it can reposition because it's designed to stay in a singular GPS location at all times for landing. Which is kind of cool. That's how they hit the center. So it's got really strong thrusters on it. So it's pretty robust, but this was just a little bit too strong. And I'm not sure if it fell off or if they ditched it. Oh. Because I can't point where you have to choose. Do we you want to save everything? the barge. Mm. Okay. Or do you just ditch the rocket? 
Somebody comes out and pushes it up. I have to say, <laughs> the more important engineering thing to solve, never mind your booster falling off, is uh, they're going to have to have some toad aerial that means they can still send the live stream. When yeah, get, get this fixed. Come on, we're so spoiled now because you're now literally watching a high-definition feed from every bit of the mission. And so that when you suddenly lose your transmission for 30 seconds, you're like, what's going on? This is a failure of modern science. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of... It's, so they did actually manage well on feet in this launch, which I hadn't realized until recently. So SpaceX been trying to get the fairings back. So these are the fairings are the sort of capsule that goes around the satellite as it gets launched. These cost about a million pounds per half. <laughs> two halves. Right. They've managed, so they've been trying to recover these to reuse them. And for the first time, they've actually managed to recover both fairings this time. Ooh. They didn't do the whole, uh, so they've got a boat called Mr. Stephen, um, which has a colossal net above it. <laughs> we'll we'll not ask why that <laughs> Edem Banks. Oh, is it another is it Banks connection? Bank, yeah. Sorry, I've not read that one. Um, all, all the boats are named for Edem Banks ships. Um, so there's a, a big net above the boat that's meant to catch the fairing. Way to go, That Steve. didn't work. Um, but they did manage to recover it from the water. So they've recovered both fairings this time, and they intend to reuse them next year on another launch of one of um, SpaceX's own satellites they're sending up. I think cool. Telstar satellite they're sending up, and they're going to reuse that fairing on it. So now you're talking about reusing the rockets and reusing the fairings on these things. Mm, that's kind of nice. It's not often you have a million pounds raining out of the sky on your head. I don't, I don't want to be the driver of Steve. Is Steve a robot as well? Or is uh, no, that... Mr. Steven is a, a manned boat. Steve. Oh, Steven. With a, with a, yeah, with a big net. Mr. Steven, do you? <laughs> yeah. Steve. You're not on first name terms of the bar. <laughs> uh, but there was also a slightly less successful Oh, this thing. makes me sad. Yeah. Um, so this was, of course, the uh, Israeli mission to try and land on the moon. This is the first ever privately funded moon lander, um, which is a, it's a huge deal. Um, actually, it sticks with it with the SpaceX connection because it was launched on the Falcon 9. Now, it was launched on the Falcon 9 um, on the 22nd of February, and it got into moon orbit on the 4th of April. Now, Apollo nerds will realise that's a very long gap between launch and orbit. Yeah, three and a half days for Apollo, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. This took a few weeks. What I hadn't realised was the reason for this. So. Um, the, the, the lander, which is called Bearsheet, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but it translates as Genesis or In the Beginning, which is quite a fitting, mm. fitting name for it. Um, it was launched with two other satellites. It was launched on a Falcon 9, so a fairly small rocket, and launched three satellites simultaneously, which meant they didn't really have much choice where they ended up orbit-wise, because everything else was going to low Earth orbit, so they had to go along with it. And then what they did was they went slingshotting around the Earth, and every time the orbit passed the far side of the Moon, they thrusted a little bit, and they managed to increase the ellipse side, the, elli- the mm-hmm. elliptical nature of their orbit, till they eventually got caught by the moon, and then they could slow down again. It was this really long, several-week transfer orbit to get into position. It's fiendish. Orbital Very mechanical good. magic. D- does, does this require less energy than just going... Right. It's, uh, yes. Uh, yes. Well, because I think it requires less launch energy. So you didn't need a Saturn V to do this. You didn't need such a big rocket to get you off the ground. But I'm not sure if it's the most efficient in-orbit manoeuvre. Was this um, cost-effective, though, if you're launching with three other satellites? Like, were you just getting a piggyback ride, or was this just sort of like you only had a third of the launch cost? It's a third of the launch costs. Okay. So the, it's Space IL, which is the Israeli space company that's privately funded to set this up, with, which has a support from a couple of philanthropists who throw a lot of money at it, as well as the Israeli Space Agency. Um, they arranged this launch with SpaceX and the two other satellite companies to sort of 
share the launch cost had really minimised that. And that's why they could do it as, I'm going to say, cheaply as they could. Yeah. They well, did do it very That bit did work, you know. I mean, it, it yeah, got, got to the moon oh, yeah. um, in, in slightly cheaper, longer fashion. Yeah. But then that's fine. If, you're, if yeah. you don't have a human on board, why, why, why rush? Yeah. <laughs> it, got, it got some great images pointing back towards the Earth mm. with the little Israeli flag um, sticking in its selfie cam. <laughs> um, and it did get into orbit of the moon and it did begin its descent. Um, again, taking some like, some really spectacular images of it as it descended um, of the moon's surface yeah, in the background nice. with the little um, Israeli flag and sort of, is it small country, big dreams sort of yeah. logo on it. Really nicely done. Didn't go so well after that, though. So, we're going to say, firstly, landing on the moon's really hard. <laughs> it's only ever been done by the Russian Space Agency, the American Space Agency, and the Chinese Space Agency, and Chinese Space Agency in the last few years. So, and they have the government fundings. Yeah. This was a cheap mission. This mission actually originated trying to get the Lunar X Prize. Um, but when the Lunar X Prize funding was pulled at the beginning of 2018, because no one was going to meet the date, these guys just said, well, okay, we're going to keep doing it, because we want to go to the moon. Um, so on the descent, something went wrong. Um, Do we know what that something was? The investigation is still underway. It would appear as a lawyer. I was reading. <laughs> I can't tell you. Yeah, look. <laughs> no, I think, so the reason I say all this is because this, this, this happened the same day as the Falcon Heavy launch. This was a couple of hours earlier. There's been a lot going on recently. <laughs> it was a good week. Um, and I was sat watching the landing, because again, they live-streamed the landing, because of course they did, um, of the Israeli lander. I was sat with two people that designed the main engine for it. Oh no. So the main engine is actually built by a British company um, called NAMO. And this is the main rocket engine for the lander. Um, and I was sat with one of the designers and one of the directors of the company watching it on a big screen as it was happening. Very fun. Great chat. It was really, really enjoyable. Um, and as it was coming down, they saw something go wrong. They're watching the live stream and they went, oh, that's, that's not right. Uh, that should still be firing. Because the rocket stopped. The main engine stopped firing for a few seconds. I think, I think maybe tens of seconds. Uh-oh. And then came back on again. Problem was... It had to fire the entire time, so it was slowing down. It wasn't slowing down enough, so it couldn't do a soft landing. And it did a, as our colleague John Davies would describe it, a hard little break <laughs> um, into the moon's surface. That is a shame. So initially, there's lots of questions being asked about this. As it turns out, from what it now looks like, and the investigation is underway, so there's still quite, you know, there's no certainty of what happened. The rocket actually, the main engine, I should say, performed nominally. But there was a computer problem on board that caused the computer to restart, which turned oh. the engine off. And while it was rebooting, it wasn't firing. Once the computer came back on and went, oh yeah, I should be firing my engine, it came back on. That's a shame. But by that point, it was too late. So um, am I right in thinking, because um, I've seen it referred to as a suicide burn, in that you're, if you have a rocket motor, it's more efficient to fire it when you're traveling fast to do with the rocket escape velocity. And so... In Earth, you would fire your engine at your fastest point if you want to change your orbit and you get a little bit more bang for your buck. So for the suicide burn, you literally fire your engine at the last possible second because then you're saving as much fuel on the way down. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's such a shame. But I was just wondering if that, that was exactly how they designed it, was they only had X amount of thrust, so they needed to burn and then they lost that 10 seconds and then that was it game over i think that's more or less it yeah so is that just trying to trying to stop and you're just flying towards the lunar surface and just slamming on your your brakes as hard as you can to try and not hit it i mean it's an incredibly solid attempt and i mean a lot of credit to them for doing this i mean it was astounding done cheaply yeah yeah really impressive some of the experiments might have actually survived 
So LRO is going to be passing over it soon. This is the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter owned by NASA. Try and look for the crash site. And there's actually a, like a laser ranger um, retroreflector on top of the mission, which may have survived. So they can actually pinpoint the landing site still. <laughs> because it was it almost got to a sort of soft landing. Oh, yeah. Did. Yeah. Black Did I read that came from NASA? So NASA mm-hmm. had some more retroreflectors in the can and they just went, do you want one of ours? And <laughs> Popped on cool. top, yeah. <laughs> but Bashir 2 is already in the works. Is so this another said, Israeli one? Yep, oh, said cool. they're going to go again because they've learnt a lot from that one. They intend to go again. Brilliant. So they're on work to, to make a second one so and go ahead. So same sort of system of launch? I think. Plan? I don't know. I mean, they've announced this yesterday, I think. They said they're going to go for Bashir 2. Um, Bashir 2. And they're going to start, you know, they're starting on working on it, starting to develop it. So quite what they do, I don't know. Um, again, probably a few years to develop and stuff. Because a lot of the, the basis for the funding of this, the sort of space industry's development, um, education development in Israel as well. So whether they do the same thing again, whether you try something slightly different, I don't know. Um, but I would be interested to see what happens anyway. I'm feeling slightly left out. Can we start the formal campaign to get Scotland to m- make its own little CubeSat and get it to the moon? Would that be um, something? <laughs> this is about a, a hundred million, I heard. Um, yeah, that's roughly what they spent. So it's quite cheap as missions quite go. Cheap. I mean, you could yeah. do ten of those rather than repairing Notre Dame. And, and don't forget, you're not. <laughs> Don't forget, you're not setting fire to it in a pile. You are yeah. using that to pay for people and everything. Yeah. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's the staff money that counts. That was a terrible reference with the Notre Dame connection. I think 93 million of this was donated by one person. Really? Ooh, wow. Wow. Okay. So we just need friends with deep pockets. Yes. Very deep. If any of our listeners have me. very deep pockets <laughs> and fancy funding us on the Just don't know mission. what to do with that 93 million you got kicking yeah. around. <laughs> do give us a call. We can help you. <laughs> it is. I mean, 100 million. That's still like a. a what, a fifth of what the UK spends on astronomy, particle physics, uh, nuclear physics each each year? Right. I don't so actually know what those numbers are. Because it's like about half, 500 million, I thought, was it? I think so, the yeah. budget for SUFC? We should know this. This is who we work for. Um, so it, the, it's small, but it's still quite a lot of I'm money. I'm sure in the press conference, the ESO people were saying the, the budget across Europe is going up to 17 billion or something. I think that was probably euros when he was talking about that, but that's it's a, a, a huge amount of money mm-hmm. towards this kind of stuff. And it's nice because it's, it's like, it's sometimes it is just that, you know, imaging a black hole is not going to save many lives, but at the same time, it moves us further forward and helps to sort of um, figure out where or how Einstein might be going wrong, but it looks like Einstein passed another test, so way to go, Einstein. That was about 40 million, apparently. What was? The the the, the, the Event Horizon Telescope. 40 million? Yeah. Oh, digits. Bargain. That is. One, oh. Does that include the, the flight tech? No, no, the like, building oh, of the... No, no, no. Yeah. So that's the additional investment to go and slightly to modify all those telescopes, yeah. lots of trips to the South Pole. Run your supercomputers. Add different receivers. Yeah. Handled by all those hard drives. Well, uh, compared to the cost of building a whole new observatory, I mean, mm, it was dirt really cheap. cheap. Yeah. 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 I think at the point we start talking about these kind of sums of money and getting to do that, so that is a whole other episode of podcast. So <laughs> I think, thank you very much for listening. We'll call it there for today. Cheers, all. Cheers. Bye. Bye.